Another one of our sponsors I'm excited to tell you about is actually another podcast. It's called People of Product. And it's really about kind of highlighting the way people come together in innovative ways and create all the digital products that seem to be in every part of our lives. And what I think I like the most is that these guys are speaking from experience. You know, we had George Brooks on our show. And besides that, he's like a really genuine human being, just super knowledgeable at creating way more effective teams to get this kind of stuff done. And I really can't recommend it enough. You can find them anywhere that you get your podcasts and I recommend you checking out People of Product. So longtime listeners of the show will probably remember Jay Davis, who's been on a number of times. Well, in addition to being a friend and a consulting client, I'm excited to say now that he's also a sponsor of this show. Last year, when I was spending a lot of time at his company's office, he started a new company called PillowCube, which is this awesome memory foam rectangle pillow. That's tall enough for me to be a side sleeper, but not have to have my head sag down like when I try to fold over my regular pillows. It's really pretty amazing, and for any side sleepers like me, it's great so we don't have to wake up with shoulder pain. On top of that, it's been really fun for me to see him have so much success because it's been selling like crazy. Anyways, if you're a side sleeper, I highly recommend going to pillowcube.com and getting one for yourself. Responding on mental health issues. So at two o'clock in the morning, police get a call and somebody's having a nervous breakdown or, and are threatening some violence and it's a mental health case. The police show up with a caseworker from social from mental health. And so the, the interventions are being done by the caseworker under the protection of police if necessary. But they're able to de-escalate and defuse situations. They've changed the way they do traffic stops. You know, before it used to be a mechanical failure in a car, no turn signal, etc., etc. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, we've got uh, one of my mentors, one of my friends, Jim Koppel. Jim, thanks for making time for this. Glad to be here. Glad to do it, Jess. So you've got a pretty, you've got a pretty unique background. I'm, I'm interested, how do you describe your background or when people ask what you do, what do you say? Well, that's a good question. I've been heavily driven by my faith. I've been heavily driven by sort of the idealism of the 1960s. And I've sort of looked for every opportunity I could to advance intellectually, spiritually, socially, and to connect, especially in service to people. And that's sort of been the, the driving force is how I can serve others. Yeah. You know, you, you've got some pretty big accomplishments in your background. You know, our, our when our mutual friend Lindsay Hadley got us introduced, she she had a longer introduction than that she she listed a number of your accomplishments. But can you can you give just a couple of them? You know, how much money you've raised for nonprofit clients from grants and other projects like that, and maybe some of the big projects you've been a part of. Yeah, over the course of our career, we've raised about six hundred and eighty million dollars in contracts, grants through foundations, private sector, as well as public sector funding. I facilitated President Obama's task force on 21st century policing, just recently facilitated the Council on Criminal Justice Task Force on Federal Priorities and Criminal Justice Reform. I've met every president since Harry Truman. As a child, I met him sitting on my grandmother's lap while he was engaging a conversation with her. But I've met every president. 
department, worked with seven of those 13 in a variety of contexts or roles and responsibilities. I've been to about 120 countries. I've spoken in about 90 different countries in every state in the United States on substance abuse, youth violence, criminal justice reform, police reform, and really believe in being engaged in the public square or the public uh, sector to be involved. I want to show up. Yeah. Well, I appreciate it. And I appreciate all the mentorship and advice for Child Rescue Association. We've we've really benefited from from having your guidance and ideas around. So thank you for that. Glad to do it. That's an important issue. (laughs) Well, tell us about tell us about your books and tell us about the Legacy Project. Well, I've written uh, five books uh, in the course of my career and about 70 monographs. The most recent book is called The Seeker, Bring Me the Horizon. And it was motivated or driven by a concern about legacy and uh, the legacy we inherit, the legacy that we are currently creating, and then for future generations, the legacy that I challenge young people to create. And it should be value-based. The principles and guidance that I inherited from my parents and my grandparents and from mentors in my life was very significant. And I still live a lot of that out. And so I didn't want to write. I've been encouraged by a number of people to write a biography or to tell some of the stories of my experiences. And uh, I felt it was a bit pretentious on my part to write a an autobiography or a memoir, but I took a cue from John Lacari, the mystery writer and uh, the former British spy who wrote a book called The Pigeon The Pigeon Way, which was really about events in his life. And so The Legacy Project and the book Seeker is about events in my life that have helped shape or define who I am and what I do and why I do it. And uh, and so it's an encouraging others to think about their legacy and the things that they've learned or that they have inherited. And oftentimes it can be reduced to a simple trite phrase. But when I think of the relationship I had with my father, who was not a person of faith, served in the Second World War, was wounded twice, and uh, came from that greatest generation. And, and the kind of principles and values he passed on to his children were values that helped shape a lot of the decisions I've made in my life. And so I write about that in the Legacy Project or in the book. And the Legacy Project includes a, a podcast where I'm interviewing people and uh, getting their story about who influenced them and what uh, kind of influences they want to leave behind and what they value. And uh, we're also doing some vlogging where we're really talking about those kinds of principles to get people reflecting on who they are and what they want to become. Yeah. I love it. Well, it's been it's been fun for me to see you contemplating the idea of having a podcast to the point where you've got shows out and you're getting such good response. So congratulations on making that happen. Thank you. And help. thank you for your help on that. Let, let's talk about a few fun stories. Can you tell us a little bit about this project you've been doing in Kenya lately? Yeah, I've been working in Kenya now for about 10 years. It grew out of the post-election violence in 2007-2008. And we were asked to come in to look at an issue related to youth unemployment because idle youth were contributing to the violence and unemployed youth were contributing to the violence. And so with the major grant from USAID, we launched an initiative on youth employment and equipping young people to enter the workforce and to become social entrepreneurs in that process. That has led to the famine that took place in 2011 in Kenya. We discovered that, much to our surprise actually, was that women were heavily victimized by violence as a result of the famine. If they couldn't feed their families, often their husbands would beat them. And they were left, and children were left alongside the road. Older children were kept, 
because they could forage for food, but younger children were simply abandoned alongside the road. And so that began our work in gender-based violence. And we built a major center in Lodwar. We started our work in the Dadaab refugee camp. At that time, it was the second largest refugee camp in the world in eastern Kenya. And we worked in partnership with UNICEF. And then UNICEF asked us to go to Lodwar, which is in western Kenya, near the Kakama refugee camp. And they were going to, they wanted to build a one-stop or one service center, one-stop shopping, if you will, for legal services, medical attention, and counseling and job and career counseling. And so we raised the money to build that center and put a wing on a hospital in Lodwar. And then we built what's called the Wings of Hope Center for counseling. And we then acquired some land and we now have 250 women who come from the Turkana nomadic culture who are now agriculturalists. They're growing watermelon and vegetables. They've put in with the help and partnership of funding sources here in the United States. We built greenhouses and shed nets. And uh, last year, they profited $25,000 in their agricultural efforts. It gives them an opportunity to engage in a skill that they hadn't acquired. They're now buying clothes for their students, or for their children, and they're able to pay school fees. And uh, they're prospering at this farm. And uh, it's run by the women. It's managed by the women. And it's a gender empowerment. They've since also opened up a major tailoring center where they're repairing clothes. And during the pandemic, they've been one of the major suppliers in Western Kenya of masks, making masks back and giving back to the community. And so that's been a real opportunity for them to serve. When we started in Africa, we actually started in Swaziland, which is now Eswatini. And they were the number one HIV AIDS country in the world, the highest prevalence rate. And a partnership with Coca-Cola Africa Foundation, we put in 52 water wells around clinics, and we forged a number of partnerships to get at the HIV AIDS crisis. And a partnership with the Loop Commission, which now employs about 350 people at a major hospital, and they're responding to the COVID crisis. But we raised about $22 million dollars that project in Swaziland. And, and again, part of that was a partnership with Coca-Cola, USAID, and a variety of other partners to really deal with the HIV-AIDS crisis and to train to, to really change the attitude, the, the bias, the stigma, and the prejudice related to anybody who had was HIV positive, especially women, was horrific. And uh, we launched two major campaigns beginning in 2005 to change that. And we've seen a dramatic reduction in HIV AIDS where the prevalence rate had been at 42%. Uh, it's now down to 22%. And so- uh, hey, congratulations. Yeah, we're very excited about that project. You know, I'm interested in this. I don't know if we've ever talked about this before. What, what did those campaigns look like to, to change attitudes? Well, it was education campaigns. It, uh, it was a media campaign that focused on the fact that this, this disease was sexually transmitted and that everybody owned responsibility for the choices and decisions they were making. They, we motivated them to get tested by getting celebrities or well-known people, including the king in Swaziland, to say that he had been tested. And uh, so that people could role play or imitate that kind of leadership. And so we really focused heavily on changing the norm about what was acceptable. And we got a number of faith leaders to stand up and say, I mean, one particular faith leader was very influential in the country, as well as the region, said that he gets tested twice a year, regardless. 
and that he basically told his pastors and the clergy that they should be tested and they should stop the stigma around what they called dirty blood and to recognize that these were humans with human needs and they needed to be ministered to and cared for. And so we worked pretty extensively with a major hospital, one of the largest hospitals, to increase their capacity uh, to test and to treat. And then we expanded clinics from five clinics to 24 clinics so that we pushed it out into the countryside. And then our partnership with the Luke Commission particularly, they gained a lot of data and information and really approached this as a compassionate. And they really started off as a husband and wife team, he a medical doctor, she a physician's assistant, and they traveled around the country testing and then gathering data. And now they employ over 350 people. They've built a major hospital and uh, they're at the center of compassionate care in Eswatini today. That's impressive. That's great. You know, one of the questions that comes to mind is, you know, there's, there's so many stories about Americans or Westerners showing up and, and showing up with their answer. I'm interested in any principles that you have learned over your years of how to show up and help, but how to, how to make it feel culturally relevant to them and how to, you know, stimulate homegrown answers and, and not have that, you know, copy and paste picture of, you know, the problem of, well, it worked in America. Why isn't it working here? Well, the first thing is listening is going in and asking questions and being a good listener and and to listen to their suggestions and their ideas. I often tell the story, our farm in Kenya, again, this is done by women, but we were planting watermelon and the birds were swooping down and eating the plants before they had a chance to come to fruition. And the women had this idea to build these small, what looked like their huts that they lived in, but they built these small huts and put them over the, the seeds until they were strong enough and water and sun could get to it. And they would then we remove the, 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 the coverings. And that was their idea. And, and it turned in our agricultural project completely around from being devastated by the plants being eaten by birds to where they started making profit on watermelon. But listening is a key thing. And I have to also say, Jess, that one of the, the greatest compliments I ever receive in working in a, another country is, and, and, it's, and I heard it first in Swaziland, was about the second or third trip to Swaziland, this woman working on a farm, working on HIV AIDS counseling and doing this task force, she looked at me and she grabbed me by the arm and she said, I just want to say one thing to you. You came back. You came back. Oftentimes we go in, it's a one-shot trip, mission trips, and we do these events and it might have an impact, but it's not sustainable. And so we don't begin or do any project that doesn't have a sustainability plan that involves local leadership in making the decisions and the choices around the kind of treatment or interventions we're putting in place. And so we just facilitate, you know, we broker resources where possible. We give the, the funder the assurance that money is being well managed. We train and equip our teams, local teams, to be able to handle that responsibility. We work heavily against corruption and we pay people well in order to support them and their families in that process. But showing up, coming back and listening and then experimenting, being innovative with their interventions. That's not only a principle that I use internationally, but it's one I use here as well. Yeah. You know, there's such different norms. There's such different like societal attitudes. Let's talk about that one of corruption. You know, in many places of the world, that's, that's just how things are done. Can you talk about, can you tell us a story of, of having to face that? 
Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know how many times we've been. We, we have a policy in all the countries that we work in. There will be no corruption. We will not participate in corruption. We'll walk away from a project if corruption is at the table. And we give people the choice. Our police reform initiative in Kenya, the face of corruption is in local police, especially traffic police. And it goes right up the food chain. I mean, the local officer on the street collects a bribe. A part of that bribe goes to his supervisor. A part of that goes to his supervisor, and it works its way up the chain. And we basically said that if we were going to do police reform, we were going to break that cycle. But we needed to do that by being sure police officers were paid well, that they were given adequate and sufficient housing, that they were given the respect that they deserved, the training that was required. Because as in Kenya, as in the United States, an officer may graduate from the academy and he comes into the job with a sense of idealism and hope, but very quickly it turns into something very negative. And either the way people react to him or the pressure from supervisors to do corruption. And so calling out corruption, we're part of a campaign in Kenya uh, called Nguana, which means respect and all aspects of life versus Nshinzi, which means disrespect or greed. And it's a thumbs up or a thumbs down in terms of decisions that you make. And it's catching on in the general population. If somebody is confronted with paying a bribe, they either go thumbs up or thumbs down saying, I'm not participating in that. You know, it bothered me when I first went to Kenya and I saw signs in, around universities. Play, this is a no corruption zone. And I thought, why do we need zones? It should be part of the norm of the culture and the life. And so value-based policing is what we're stressing, is, is that you talk about respect for the other person. So how do you do that? How do you get, how do you get police officers paid adequately? Well, you get, you get the chairman of the budget committee for parliament to come to the United States, and you take him to different police agencies, and he hears the message about corruption about compensation, about insurance, retirement, and then he goes back and he adopts those kinds of policies. And so we're changing, we're working bottom up and top down in this approach, getting effective policies put into place around compensation, reorganizing the police agencies, reorganizing the training academies and the emphasis. Because even in the United States, somebody will graduate from a police academy and they're out with a field training officer. And within five minutes, the field training officer is saying, well, Lee, gee, don't pay any attention to what they taught you in the academy. I'm going to show you how it's really done. And then things start unraveling at that point. It's the same play, same thing in East Africa or in South Africa, where the relationship with the field training officer becomes the defining relationship, as opposed to the values an individual brings to that situation. So we set up systems to reward. Example, we're replicating in Kenya, probably within the next two months, a project which we learned from Louisiana and New Orleans and Baltimore, where police in those cities are actually incentivized to report negative behavior on the part of fellow officers. If they see an, an officer doing something inappropriate, such what happened in Minnesota with George Floyd, an officer is encouraged, incentivized to do an intervention and actually affirmed and promoted and recognized for doing an intervention as opposed to standing back and doing nothing. And so we're looking at replicating those kind of programs. You know, it's such a touchy thing. You know, I've got so many friends that are cops and supportive child rescue and, you know, punk, punk skateboard buddies yeah. <laughs> as we were teenagers who were now on SWAT teams and stuff, right? 
And I'm, I'm interested in that relationship because, you know, in many ways, a lot of those type of organizations can feel a little bit, they can feel a little bit like junior high, you know, same with this operations committee where your reputation, everything and being tough is a big deal and being cool is a big deal. And, you know, and their habits and their ruts that they've got in, and some of them are great and some of them are not great. You know, when you think about, you know, in a tight group that doesn't like being told what to do from anybody outside, how to have that not just be a good idea, but get that implemented. What, what's been successful? Well, as far as the it incentivization. Really begins, it really begins with the way we hire and how we hire and who we hire and in policing. Policing has historically and traditionally been a paramilitary kind of operation. We get the police we expect, dating back to slave patrols. We hired police to capture runaway slaves, and they did their job, and that's what we wanted them to do. During Jim Crow, we asked police to keep our water fountains and our bathrooms segregated, and our schools segregated. They showed up and they did the job we asked them to do. Mass incarceration, dealing with a drug issue in this country, where we're arresting, trying to arrest our way out of the problem, is that we ask police to do that. We have to change the way we think about policing. And so the discussion around reimagining policing is getting the community involved in that conversation. We did a program several years ago called Hiring in the Spirit of Service. And in that program, we hired ex-nurses, teachers, social workers, people who had a service-oriented approach to the community, and we trained them as law enforcement officers. Where, where was this? Well, we piloted it in Memphis, in Kansas City, and in Seattle, Washington. And uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma was also our foresight. And in those places with a grant from the Ford Foundation, we really transformed the way those police departments began to operate. And so it comes down to where we're hiring people, the kind of people we hire. And if we're hiring ex-military, and I don't want to minimize their contribution to the process, but you can hire guardians and warriors. When you need a warrior, you want a warrior to show up. But for the most part, policing is about guardian, protecting and serving the community. Every day in the United States, there are over a million contacts between police and community. And last year, about 999 African-Americans were killed by police and about 180 police were killed in the line of duty. And compare that against a million contacts every day in this country. There are many things that we're doing right about policing and we don't tell that story. And we don't tell the story of those individual cops who are making a difference in, by a service-oriented approach. Yeah. So my question is, nobody likes to have the finger pointed at them, right? So my question is, there are a lot of folks in society today, in the media, on social media, doing a lot of finger pointing, right? right. So what I'm interested in, what have you done differently that has made it inviting for police and police chiefs to want to choose this instead of to resist it? Well, public pressure and media pressure is, plays a big role in that, in shaping the attitude of police. You know, after 9-11, everybody wanted to become a policeman or a fireman, and we had no trouble recruiting. And then when police and the media started covering police shootings, particularly of African-Americans, then the attitude towards police turned south. And so you've got some very innovative chiefs in this country who are building bridges into those communities by involving those neighborhoods and those communities in decision-making in citizen advisory groups, citizen oversight boards, police transparency and accountability. When you mess up, 
say it. Get the information out as fast as you can. And don't try to cover up or hide things or overly defend. And the departments that are doing that or being proactive in their communication with the community are winning that battle. And uh, But it's, it's clear, Jess, that one of the things that has to happen because it has an impact on recruitment is that we've got to change the culture of policing in a way that is truly focused on service to the community and not punishment or retribution. Yeah. So in, in that exact scenario, those chiefs that have embraced that and that are getting those better results, I can see how the next chief after that is like, man, those guys are getting those kind of results. That'd make my life easier. I'm going to do what he's doing. My question is the first guys. How do you get the first guys to want to? Or what was successful for you? Well, it's been exposure to these ideas and plus in the training and the leadership academies that are done by the Department of Justice or by organizations like the International Association of Chiefs of Police, IATLAS, the International Association of Directors of Law Enforcement Standards and Training, getting those groups to really focus on that kind of policing and then showing examples of its success and the and it, the power and using that to leverage the kind of change that happens. Camden, New Jersey is a, a good example, one of the best examples in the country. Camden had a huge negative reputation, a number of police involved shootings, and a new chief came in. And he ba- he, what he basically did with support of the city council, he fired everybody and he started all over. Everybody had to reapply for their jobs. And then he set up this feedback mechanism where police were getting constant feedback and evaluation on their performance using body camera footage, feedback from the community. And so if an officer was involved in a a questionable action or behavior, they were brought in and they were instructed, not punished, but instructed. This is where you failed. This is what went wrong. This is what you need to do improve. You better make that change. or you will be gone. And officers embraced it. You know, I think that's such a good distinction there about instruction versus punishment. Yeah. You know what I mean? When you think about, you know, I I think about how many folks I know in law enforcement who are so genuinely concerned about people, they get they get jaded by seeing the worst parts of humanity all day every day, you know? Yeah. They they get jaded by seeing departments make decisions that, you know, financial decisions or staff decisions that don't seem like they're taking into consideration the lives of the individual officers. They get jaded by the way, you know, a reporter will sometimes misconstrue fast to set for headlines, right? But at the core, there's so, in my experience, and maybe it's just because I get to work with great cops, both on the, you know, consulting clients in the past or, or her volunteering child rescue. And we don't necessarily, we don't expect the bad apples or something, right? But I see guys who, who genuinely care and and so this idea of having a feedback loop that isn't so punitive, I can see why that would be successful. Yeah, absolutely. And where they feel like they're part of the decision-making process, you know, historically, again, in terms of the way we've done policing, it's been par- very paramilitary with a clear command and control structure. And so most rank and file cops, with the average tenure of the police chief in the United States is about three years, they just kind of wait for the bad ones to leave and the next guy to come in and wonder what thing he's going to emphasize or she's going to emphasize. And they just kind of ride along. But when they're brought into that process, I mean, Madison, Wisconsin, a new chief there, he has developed a center for innovation within the police department where rank and file officers can come with ideas. They will experiment with these ideas. 
in terms of community outreach and engagement. And so it's, it's truly a collaborative process and not just a top-down process. Do you, do you remember any of the experiments they've tried? Well, yeah. For example, co-responding on mental health issues. So at two o'clock in the morning, police get a call and somebody's having a nervous breakdown or, or threatening some violence, and it's a mental health case. The police show up with a caseworker from, from mental health. And so the interventions are being done by the caseworker under the protection of police if necessary, but they're able to de-escalate and diffuse situations. They've changed the way they do traffic stops. You know, before it used to be a mechanical failure on a car, no turn signal, et cetera, et cetera. And it was disproportionately African-American they were discovering. Well, they changed their approach on traffic stops and it changed the number of people that were being pulled over or arrested and they de-escalated that situation. Instead of having an excuse to pull a car over, they truly needed probable cause. I mean, there's some things that they're just, they're, they're experimenting with in that process. Also, they're hiring more women. The research clearly shows, I mean, of, of our entire 800,000 law enforcement officers, only 18% are women. And they're hiring more women because the research is showing that women will de-escalate more quickly than men in a particular situation, particularly dealing with mental health or substance use. And so they're, 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 they're playing around with those pieces. But the most important thing is they're asking the question, what kind of policing does this community want? And what kind of policing does this community need? There's no assumption there. They're getting input from the neighborhoods related to that. You know, it's, it's interesting. We get so many different kinds of innovators on the show, right? Mm-hmm. And just this theme that I feel like comes to me over and over is the humility the humility to to listen to listen and really want to hear the answer, you know, yeah. instead of take our familiarity and instead of like counting all the reasons why we already know what people want, instead like putting those on pause and and trying to look for things we didn't know about or trying to discover things that we didn't already know about instead of just looking for confirming evidence that yes, I'm really smart and I understand this and my assumptions about what they wanted were right. It just so many of like the people I've respected the most who've come on the show who accomplished the most, they, they're like willingness to set aside their solution and, and genuinely discover and genuinely listen, which sounds so simple. And we've all heard it since we were little kids. And yet I, I see it more so lived by the people who've accomplished the most. Do you have any thoughts about that? Well, again, I think it's a matter humility may be the right word or a good word, but I think the officers and the leadership that I appreciate are people who, to quote Micah 6.8, who pursue justice, love mercy, and uh, walk humbly. That if those kind, that kind of leadership is transformative. You know, years ago when I was working in Wichita, Kansas on a gang issue or a gang problem, you know, we passed a tough curfew ordinance. Any teenagers out past a certain hour were picked up by police. The police came to a community coalition meeting and said, well, gee, thanks for the curfew ordinance. However, now we're busy rounding up teenagers after curfew instead of doing real policing. The the clergy in the meeting, Jess, said, why don't you bring those kids to our churches? We'll do the interventions with the parents. And the police said, well, we can't do that. We have to take them to a recognized juvenile holding center when we pick them up. The judge in the room said, I'll declare the church's recognized juvenile holding center. (laughs) We trained the clergy to do the interventions. We saw a 67% reduction in juvenile crime post-curfew with that program because people were working together in collaboration. 
It also then worked to reduce graffiti. It also did reduce the gang homicide. There were all those different pieces that came together because people were willing to listen to each other and to collaborate and didn't show up in the room with, I've got all the answers. You better listen to me. You know, I, I think about this. It's such a simple concept, but not easy to like to conquer ourselves and to conquer our ego or conquer our desire to be important for having the answer or things like this. When you when you think about the people who who have conquered that part of themselves the most, what kind of traits do you see in common? Faith. <laughs> I, I people who come into these professions, whether it's education, nursing, who have a compassionate heart and see the other through the eyes of compassion, that is often driven by a faith foundation. And I don't care what that faith is. It can be Christianity, Islam, or Hebrew, whatever it might be. You know, I have a great partnership in Kenya with the Sikhs who are doing amazing work, compassionate work. And it's their faith that drives them and their concept of humanity that drives them into that work. If they have a value base, I see a difference in conduct or behavior. If it's all about me or it's a narcissism that this is about what I do, what I know, and I've got it all figured out, I can generally anticipate we're going to have a problem. Yeah, makes sense. You know, we've got so many entrepreneurs who listen to the show and investment fund managers and, and people that, you know, once they get successful enough, they do want to do philanthropic things or impact investing and stuff like this. You know, securing $680 million in grants and contracts and things like this, you, you've, you've learned some lessons there. For folks who want to apply some of their business skills and, and spend some of their life energy relieving unnecessary suffering and trying to help the world and their fellow man, what's a principle about, say, getting grants? What What's a principle that, that you would teach about helping people increase the probability they get a grant for their cause? Know your mission and be able to articulate it clearly. And uh, do not go off the mission. Stay true to the mission and communicate that you're going to stay true to the mission. I mean, I said to a funder, a major funder in this space <laughs> several years ago, that they wanted me to do something that was against my value base. And I said, we have a policy in place that says we can't and won't participate in that behavior. And so if that's a condition, then you can keep your money. And we walked away. You know, a year later, they called me up and said, we put that condition aside. We want to fund what you're doing. And I said, just know we're going to do it on our terms. And I don't usually talk that way to a funder. But at the same time, I've got to know who I am and what my values are. I always tell uh, people that I work with all, always have a policy in place before you're staring at a check. And I work in substance abuse prevention and the alcohol industry is always trying to give me money. And we've got a policy in place that we will not take money from an alcohol industry organization because of their marketing practices and youth substance abuse. And I have been offered just over the last 10 years, probably close to $30 million in grants or contracts if I would just collaborate with them. And I just, we have a policy that we don't do that. And so being very clear about what you stand for and articulating what you stand for. I find private sector funders and I even find government funders saying to me, we respect that. We honor that in that process. So. I will say, maybe I shouldn't give too many details, but <laughs> I, I had a guy, I had a guy, well, wealthier guy, call me up and tell me, you know, I, I'd known him from a different financial transaction and called me up and said, you know, I remember your charity and the great work you've done. And we want to set up a thing where, where we give a portion of our profits from a business to charity. And 
And I was like, oh yeah, tell me about the business. He's like, well, we want to start an app that rates escorts. And I was like, I was like, hold on. Are you, are you, are you familiar with the, like the almost completely irrelevant line between legal escorts and, and trafficking and abuse and violence towards women? Like, are you are you aware that that's like one of the number one you know that and legalography production that leads to yeah. legal harm and like I, I, it was flabbergasting to me that he thought I was going to take the money so that yeah. he could kind of whitewash his reputation, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's so I think uh, being very clear about your mission, knowing what you can do and you will do, and then also being transparent. You know, I we have a partnership and a new initiative we're doing called Act Now, which is focusing on 14 cities and listening to neighborhoods and communities on reimagining policing. And I have two funding partners on both sides of the equation. I have Open Society, which is Soros, and I have Stand Together, which is Coke. And these two have a common- <laughs> You like to cover the whole political spectrum, don't you, Jim? That's right, bipartisan. Is that, that's, they're both, though, are committed to criminal justice reform, and they're willing to collaborate to achieve criminal justice outcomes. And in that conversation, I've, you know, I, I have a long history with Coke because they're from Wichita, and that's where I was assistant superintendent of schools, and I started my gang work. And uh, they were interested and involved in that project. And I've just been totally transparent about what our goals and objectives are in building this learning community around policing, where you have the community and police and criminal justice systems collaborating, working together in the same room. And you may not like the policy outcomes they recommend, but it's coming from them. And it's their voice that we must honor and respect because they know their communities. Because I got to tell you, in the 14 sites we're working in, every one of those sites are different. I mean, I got Martin County, Kentucky, which is where Lyndon Johnson launched the war on poverty. And I've got Nashville and Atlanta and Indianapolis. And then I have the Crow Tribe of Nations, the Pine Ridge and, and Wind River tribes, all very different environments to do this. And their solutions are different because they come out of the context of the community. We can tell somebody, well, our research says this may not work, but we're willing to experiment in this particular environment. So. That's great. Outside of the U.S. and Africa, what, what's, what's somewhere else where you've run a program? Well, we've run a program related to trash, and with the Trash Mountain Project out of Topeka, Kansas, and the Philippines, Indonesia, where they work in large trash dumps and with trash pickers, the women and children who work in these trash dumps, they're environmentally a disaster, but the living conditions are some of the worst I've ever seen in my career. And so we're working with Trash Mountain Project, and we're doing some very innovative things around waste management and energy creation in these local sites. And we have several impact investors that are looking at that kind of a project. So Trash Mountain Project is one that we work with. And we have we take what we call an ethnographical approach. We get on the ground with our clients. We walk the walk with them. We, we try to go in, feel, taste it, touch it, experience it as the people that we're working with, they experience it so that we can better represent them, the four funders, policymakers, and other leaders, so that we're not just sitting in an office in Washington, or in my case, Salt Lake City, trying to solve a problem without having felt it or touched it. So. Yeah. So so what's an example of how that would change the lives of those women and kids? 
Well, one of the things that we're doing in Kenya at the Dandora dump, which is the fourth largest dump now in the world, you got fires bursting out, methane fires, et cetera, bursting all over these dumps. We're providing housing and we're providing education for the kids, job training, because right now they see no escape from the dump. And so we're giving them education and employment opportunities outside the dump, but we're also providing them an element of safety and security by building housing for them. So they're not actually living in the dump. They're coming out. We're about to acquire funding and seeking funding, which is $120,000 to really build 40 apartments for women outside the dump so that they have the safety and security for their kids and family. So that's a direct intervention. At the same time, we're working with the government to try to figure out strategies to turn that dump into an energy generation process, including working in plastics. We're working with University Impact here in Utah about identifying investors that would look at that kind of a project. So we're trying to look at it systemically, at the same time provide direct service. You mean like maybe gasification for electricity production? Yes, that kind of Oh, really? Thing. Yeah. Oh, interesting. So what's, what's an example of job training? So a kid who's grown up like that, this is all they've known. What what's what kind of jobs might you be training them for to to you know break the cycle and and move out of that lifestyle? Well, one of the things we do is we we identify their interests. You know, so when we first went to Kenya, we were funded by USAID and the Kenya Youth Employment and Development Project, and so we would sit down with young people who were unemployed, identify their skill sets, identify their interests, and then where we could, we would team them or match them with businesses or corporations. There's this belief system that entrepreneurs in Kenya, anybody could throw up a kiosk and come out and work their way out of poverty. That's not a real sustainable solution. It's the mid-sized businesses or companies that are growing or expanding that require certain training. So we would incentivize a company with tax credits and also skill sets, bring match a young person to that company and work and mentor that young person in terms of showing up on time, productivity, creating a savings account from a salary, doing those kinds of steps to get them truly engaged and invested. And we've got some tremendous stories out of that project of young people. It's the hardest thing I've ever done. Creating a job in an, in an environment that's impoverished is extremely difficult. And uh, it takes commitment on a lot of people from a lot of different levels. And it requires a public-private partnership with government incentivizing businesses uh, to uh, bring those young people on in employment. It's interesting the lasting impact though, right? Like my my wife was the my wife was the first one to go to school in her family line in you know like a hundred years, right? After well, for sure college, but I'm trying to think. I don't know if her, her mom, grandma, great grandma, or great grandma, any of them even graduated high school, right? And like, you know, crazy background, drugs and crime and, and all sorts of, of tough things in her background. And yet you look at our kids and you look at the next generations from here and, you know, some big changes her mom made, breaking the, breaking the cycle of trafficking, but also big changes that she made of like paying the price to get good grades and go to school. And, you know, she talks about arguments with her mom growing up about when her mom's like, oh, honey, don't you want to stay home? Wouldn't it be more fun to go shopping? She's like, no, mom, I have a test. You know? <laughs> right. Right. And uh, I was like, what? It's like the opposite. Mom can't I go snowboarding, right? But but you look at like the huge, like, yes, that's a huge amount of work. But you look at like the multiplication effect of that potential generational change, setting them on a new track. It's incredible too, right? Yeah. Now that kind of breaking the cycle is intense. 
And that's one of the reasons I, I'm a strong believer in mentoring. We, we often talk about in youth development, there are four or five things that we know that really work on youth development. A significant adult in the life of a kid, acquired skills, whether it's academic, sports, music, whatever it might be, a locus of control where they have a voice in shaping their own destiny or future, and faith or a vision of the future. They get up in the morning and they have a purpose. You, you do the, and the last is altruism. You give them an opportunity to give something back. You do those five things and it's res, it builds resiliency. And we win in substance abuse, teenage pregnancy, youth crime and violence. If we can build those factors into the life of a young person, we win. It's when they don't have that kind of support that they gravitate to behavior that is self-destructive. I love it. Maybe my maybe my last question here. I know we're running out of time, but you know, there's so many folks who maybe they come from entrepreneurship where they they've been able to make rapid changes and they've been able to get things done quick and they've made some money and they want to they want to do something philanthropic or something in impact investing. And they now run into working with the government. And they probably came with some preconceived notions. And then those preconceived notions get <laughs> get reinforced a bit. Yeah. <laughs> Validated in some cases, right? What, what's just one principle that you have followed that has helped you be able to get bureaucrat, for instance, to at least become open to innovation or embrace it? Invite them into my process. Let them see, feel, taste, and touch what it is that I'm doing. If they, all they want to do is sit in a Washington office and they can't get out to see it face-to-face, then I'm, it's going to be a tough battle. Uh, I can write the best grant in the world, and it can get a high score. And if they choose to fund it, and it gets funded, I have one bureaucratic challenge after another. I have a major, pro- well, it's, it's a $100,000 project right now where we're assessing the training on human trafficking in all the posts and academies in the United States. And I have a program officer who is very engaged. And if we do this assessment right, I know she's going to champion what it is we do when we ask for the next grant in human trafficking. And so those kind of projects. And then I've had projects where they don't get it. They think it's a waste of time and money, and it's not a priority by the leadership or the political leadership within the department, whether it's health and human services. I mean, Jess, I got to tell you, and some people may not like this, but years ago, the last year, and I worked closely with the Bush administration, but the Bush administration would not allow us to use the phrase LGBTQ. They, we had to use special populations. And it was basically dehumanizing that population. We took a major grant, we implemented the program, and we did a major training in 27 states around methamphetamine use in the LGBTQ community or the special population community. I fought that. The next administration came in. They had no qualms about that. And we facilitated a major task force group policing in the LGBTQ community, dealing with the stigma and biases and prejudices that operated in that community. And the next administration, the Trump administration came in and we couldn't use that publication. We couldn't use the phrase. And now we can use it again all of a sudden. And so I just have to ride that wave of political orientation, but I stay focused on mission, that the goal is, is to provide and to treat people humanly, with, with compassion, regardless of their identity, their sexual orientation. They are all, from my perspective and my value system, 
They're all children of God. And I'm going to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly in that space. <laughs> it's a great motto. I love it. Well, uh, this has been really fun. I know we've been talking about doing this for a couple of years. I'm glad it finally happened. What, what's, what's anything we didn't cover that you want to cover before we end off here? Oh, I think we covered <laughs> covered quite a bit of it. Yeah, I, I talked about Act Now and what we're doing in that project, which is a public-private partnership on really listening and reimagining policing. Yeah, I think we covered it, Jess, at least from my perspective. Okay. I'll probably well, let, let's do this one five minutes later. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, let's tell people your websites again and the name of the book on Amazon and your podcast on Spotify and iTunes and everywhere. Let's cover that. Okay. The uh, podcast is called The Legacy Project, and it's on Buzzsprout, as well as major platforms. The book is The Seeker, Bring Me the Horizon. It came out last month, and it's really focusing on how you shape and build a legacy. The legacy I inherited, it's very biographical, and it tells a lot of my stories of experiences working globally. And plus, I my the website, the Servant Forge website, which is servantforge.org and sai-dc.com is our company website and uh, for strategic applications international. So I uh, would love people to, to listen to the blogs, buy the book and give me your reaction. <laughs> I love it. Well, listen, thanks for doing the show. And thanks for all your decades of, of trying to make the world better. Thank you, Jess. Honored to be here. We'll talk to you later. Bye, everyone. <laughs>